Thank you for listening to the KBOO Evening News. This is Totality of Circumstances, a monthly show where we take a detailed look at aspects of policing and the community responses to policing in Portland. For our next couple shows, we're focusing on protest policing, following a year of regular and widespread protests against racist and brutal policing in Portland and across the country. An unmistakable and repeated feature of the last year of protest has been the use of chemical munitions like CS gas, pepper spray, and pepper balls, and other so-called less lethal measures by Portland police and many other agencies. The local racial justice nonprofit Don't Shoot Portland filed a complaint in federal court just days after the first wave of demonstrations began in June of last year in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by a cop in Minneapolis. The lawsuit stemming from this complaint is still ongoing nearly 10 months later, but resulted in two temporary restraining orders against the city of Portland and Multnomah County's indiscriminate use of, t- of gas and other weapons. And now Don't Shoot's legal team is pursuing a motion for contempt of court following multiple alleged instances of Portland police violating those restraining orders. The third amended version of the complaint sets the lawsuit in the context of decades of disproportionate stops, arrests, and treatment of non-white people by police locally and nationally, and specifically mentions that efforts to reform biased policing in Portland for decades have been, quote, endless yet ineffective, unquote. The suit alleges that prior to and during the protests following the death of George Floyd, both the city of Portland and Multnomah County adopted policies that resulted in unconstitutional behavior by the Portland Police Bureau and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office. More specifically, the indiscriminate use of tear gas, impact munitions, and other less lethal crowd control weapons violated First Amendment rights to free speech and constituted excessive force under the Fourth Amendment. For more on the ongoing lawsuit, Jasmine and I spoke last week with Vika Safarian, an attorney with the firm of Levi Marithew Horst, LC, and part of the team representing Don't Shoot Portland and the other plaintiffs in the case. You can find the full version of this interview on the Totality of Circumstances show page at kboo.fm. That first complaint was um, based on the indiscriminate as you said before use of tear gas and other crowd control and impact munitions on uh, portlanders engaged in um, passive resistance or civil disobedience or protest and and it left it at that uh what was the outcome of that first of that first push in the courts yeah so in, on the first day that we filed the complaint which all happened very quickly um As people know, you know, Portland saw a ton of protests throughout many months, but we filed the complaint, I believe it was June 6th, I believe, um, when we started the action. So, or maybe even June 4th or 3rd, but it was several days after the protests started. um, And what we were seeing then was thousands of people coming out to protest, showing their solidarity. And the protests, the police were, you know, putting out announcements and everything that they were supporting the protests. But at a certain point in the night, things would shift. When it started getting dark, um, police would order people to disperse and then would unleash enormous amounts of tear gas that had everyone um, very upset, right? Because they were unleashing tear gas upon crowds of people, um, many of whom, most, the majority of whom, they didn't have any kind of suspicion or reason to use force. 
and the um, the government's use of force against people is very strictly defined and limited by the constitution. So the first complaint actually was only focused on tear gas. Um, and at the same time, we also filed a motion for a restraining order, a temporary restraining order. So that was a separate filing that we did. And you have to prove that it's um, immediate, there, there's need for the court to take immediate action to um, because the defendant's actions right now are harming the plaintiff and um, the public interest weighs in favor of the court um, issuing some kind of restraining order. Um, and that's necessary because these cases take years. And I think that's a lot of the frustration that people have is that it takes a really long time for the court to figure out what's going on, to hold a hearing and to do anything. And the case is still ongoing. We're not even in the middle of the case yet. But um, because we filed that motion for a restraining order on June 6th, the court issued an order saying that um, you know, the use of tear gas should not be used to disperse crowds and um, only shall be used when the lives of officers or other people is in danger and not on people passively resisting. I don't remember the, the specific wording of the order, but it was focused on tear gas initially. Uh, what sort of uh, precedent is there nationally or locally for the use of a temporary restraining order to restrict police actions? The courts, um, the courts have power to act um, to restrict um, any defendant, even if it's a city or a large administrative agency like the Department of Corrections or a prison. Um, and that's the courts usually deal with money and money damages, but they also have this power of acting when there's something immediate that needs to be done. And it's a higher standard. We have to prove that, you know, they should restrain because they also they courts tend to not want to get involved in running an agency that, you know, they don't know about. They're not experts in policing. Um, but there is precedent. I know that it happened in Seattle. I know, especially, you know, in the beginning in the summer, when tear gas was getting used in Colorado and in Seattle, we heard that, you know, the um, the district court in, in Denver used a similar restraining order. Um, so it, it, it does happen. And I think it there was a trend of doing this type of oversight through the courts at that time. Thank you. Um, and uh, would you also be able to give us sort of a um, a rundown of the different constitutional violations that you've alleged in the complaints and how um, they relate to the use of tear gas and other munitions? Yeah. So um, the main um, the main violation is under the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says that we all have rights against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. A seizure in this case means um, taking of our bodies or our property. Um, so um, force is a seizure. And the way a seizure is defined is that it interferes with your free movement and your freedom, essentially. So um, in order to use physical force against people, um, police have to have, um, they have to articulate um, the need for that force. And it's, there's a there's precedent going back to the Supreme Court, a case called Graham v. O'Connor, that says that um, 
essentially, you know, it, it's from the perspective of the officer there and what they knew and what threat that that person presented to the officer, if that person was, um, you know, armed or engaging in some kind of physical um, threat to the officer, whether with a weapon or something else, um, those considerations weigh into whether the officer ha has to have a need to use force. If not, if that person is not presenting any kind of threat to officers or others, then there's the constitution says officers can't use force against you. And the same goes for an arrest. Um, so if they have a reason to, to believe that you will be dangerous during an arrest, um, if, they're, if they're arresting someone they know to be armed, um, then they can use some force, meaning like they can, you know, use several officers to grab you, to wrestle you to the ground if you're resisting. But if you are compliant and they have no reason to believe that you present any danger, they can't use force in an arrest. So all of this is part of the Fourth Amendment. And um, our argument in, these, in this case with tear gas, and we haven't talked about this, but the Portland police started using more and more um, impact munitions, which are um, large foam tip rubber bullets. And um, also they, they can be equipped with OC spray, like so pepper spray, the guns that shoot pepper spray bullets, and also smaller bullets called FN303s that are called, like people call them pepper balls. And they leave like smaller bruises, but the big rubber bullets leave giant bruises and connect all of these weapons. They're called less lethal weapons, but they all have potential to kill someone um, if shot you know, at the head or inappropriately um, at someone's, you know, organs or in any, in a circumstance that they shouldn't be used. Um, so what we're alleging is that with the use of tear gas on crowds, officers don't have the right tear gas. Um, tear gas is a very, is composed of many really horrible chemicals and actually not, not regulated at all, manufactured overseas. Um, and depending on the batch is going to be different chemicals, but they're known to cause really horrific health effects. Um, they're even known to cause reproductive harm to people. Um, and so, you know, that is a use of force. And if that force is going to be used against several people or several hundreds of people, then our argument is the officers have to have um, a reason to be able to use that force against those people. That crowd, every single person needs to pose a threat um, against the officers or others in order to justify that use of force and to make it constitutional. Um, and the same goes for rubber bullets and FN-303s, although they're supposed to be targeted when shot from too far away or when shot inappropriately or you know, sometimes shot at someone and they hit someone else. And people say they're shot indiscriminately without um, being used against anyone committing any sort of crime. Um, we're, say we're saying that's not lawful under the Fourth Amendment. Um, the other big um, claim in our case is a First Amendment uh, violation. So um, in, this is different. So the First Amendment protects your rights um, to free speech. Um, and of course, go the government has the right to regulate our speech. We, we, can't, we can't say that that right is not um, abridged or um, regulated in some way, but um, there are strict rules about that. So essentially what we're alleging is that by, by using um, indiscriminate force against crowds of specifically um, Black Lives Matter protesters, um, 
the government has done so uh, with an effect of chilling people's speech, meaning like people won't feel as safe and comfortable and inspired to go out and protest if they think that they will be tear gassed and potentially killed and harmed um, in a way that they can't even protect themselves by being um, perfectly, you know, just a peaceful protester. So it has an effect of chilling their speech. And also we're saying specifically that it's um, motivated by a desire to chill specific type of speech. So in our complaint, we set out um, examples of protests where right-wing or pro-fascist movements and protests have come to Portland and how differently Portland police has handled those protests by essentially working with those organizations to help them have protests where they are armed and carrying um, weapons openly and facilitating their, um, their protests by closing off streets and allowing them to have that space. And then um, cracking down with tear gas and impact munitions on the anti-fascist or counter protests that are going on. So th this has been a documented trend over the course of the last three years. Um, and so we set out a few examples in our complaint saying that there's a First Amendment violation here because this force is actually being used specifically against the Black Lives Matter protests to silence this type of speech and not this other type of speech in similar circumstances. One thing that struck me really um, profoundly while reading the complaint was that they, whether they, whether the city and the county will claim that um, the indiscriminate use of tear gas and ultimately uh, rubber bullets and other impact munitions, whether the indiscriminate use of tear gas was intentional, uh, by its very nature, its use is indiscriminate. And so the the decision to acquire the tear gas, the decision to arm the police with it, and the decision to empower them to use it all rec represent policy violations that uh, should be considered to be in violation of civil rights, which I thought was just really powerful phrasing of in the complaint. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely important that we're suing the city of Portland and the county of Multnomah. And when we're, um, if we were suing specific officers in this, in this lawsuit. So for example, you know, I, I've also done lawsuits on behalf of a single person who's been harmed at a protest by a specific officer. Um, that's different than what we've had to do here, which is to prove that the city is responsible, that it was the, the decision of policymakers to, to, to use the tear gas in this way. Um, and we have evidence of that. I think people have heard that um, the city and the police made the decision to arm themselves with more tear gas and more impact munitions as these protests were getting started. Um, we also know that at these protests, there's an incident command set up with an incident commander who is uh, right below you know, the chief of police. They have complete authority over that entire protest and they are the policymaker for the city, for the actions of the city. So um, yes, exactly. It is, it is alleging that the city is responsible for, you know, chilling and oppressing the speech of anti-racist protesters. 
You're listening to Totality of Circumstances on KBOO Community Radio. We're speaking with Vika Safarian this month, one of the attorneys representing plaintiffs in a suit against the city of Portland and Multnomah County for violating a temporary restraining order last year when local law enforcement indiscriminately used chemical weapons against protesters. There was one individual whose name I saw mentioned um, on the contempt case. So I don't know if you're comfortable talking about how that came about or how that individual ended up being named in individually in this particular case. So essentially, still in the summer, um, in June, um, we moved for contempt of court. So contempt of court is basically when the court orders something and the defendants violate the court order, the court can find them in contempt of court and actually um, issue a remedy, like direct them to, to do something to, um, to heal or to remedy their violation. Um, so we're talking about how on June 6, the court signed this temporary restraining order, right? Uh, restricting their use of tear gas. Then we saw them shift because there's a lot of also political stuff happening with state level and local politicians coming out against tear gas. So tear gas became disfavored because no one likes, you know, their businesses and their homes gassed, which is what was happening. Um, so the police started using more and more um, these uh, rubber bullets and uh, pepper spray and pepper balls. So then we amended the restraining order. So the order of the judge saying you can't do it in this way. You, you can't you can't use tear gas, you can't use munitions against people who are engaged in passive resistance. And that's probably the most useful piece of information that like people who are going out protesting should know is that there's an order of the court that before the police can use force against people, they have to be able to articulate um, a threat that that person ca- is, is causing without speculating. Um, and so the people that are engaged in passive resistance, they cannot have tear gas or uh, these like weapons used against them. Um, and passive resistance is what it sounds like. It's, you know, if they're, if they're telling you to disperse and you're not dispersing, you're standing there, you're passively resisting. If they're, sho- if they're shoving people with batons down the street and you start grabbing at them, that's some form of action. So we, we so basically we, we ended up having a hearing about what happened on June 30th. Um, June 30th, there was a protest outside um, the Portland Police Association building in North Portland. Um, and on that day, um, the police pushed the protesters into um, Albina and um, further into this historically black neighborhood before gassing the crowd. Um, and so, and on, on the way during that push, um, the police, and it was Portland police, and it was also Portland State Police, Oregon State Police. Um, they were using um, the rubber bullets, FN-303s and pepper spray against people. So we, um, we had a ton of video that we collected from that day. Um, and we presented um, people, witnesses, people, Portlanders who were out protesting as live witnesses to the court who testify about what happened. We also had a ton of video. And from that day, the court ended up finding the city of Portland violation of its order not to use tier, not to use um, less lethal munitions against passively resisting protesters. Um, and I, I forget the specific number. I think it was like 
six or eight viol specific violations that the court found from the video and the testimony. Um, and actually all of the violations were caused by a single officer. It happened um, that it was Brent Taylor, um, who I think has the number 12 uh, and people know him. Um, you know, people on the ground, they, they start recognizing the, the, the worst of, of the police officers out there, right? And so um, it, we could tell in the video that he was the one that um, it was, you know, through the video, through his testimony and through other people's testimony that it was obvious that um, I think all of the violations, um, except for maybe one, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that they were all, but the vast majority of them were caused by Brent Taylor. So um, recently, I think it was what it was this week, March 16th, the court finally issued um, a remedy. So they found the city in contempt of court after that hearing. And then they issued um, Judge Hernandez, the, the judge issued an order saying that, you know, the officers have to do additional training. Um, Brent Taylor cannot um, be a part of policing for crowd control management purposes until um, he is investigated internally by the Portland police. And we can talk about that more, but um, he's off uh, protest duties for now. Um, and I mean, I think the most powerful thing about what the court did was um, it reminded them that, you know, the court is watching, the court has found your, your police force in violation and um, each officer has to certify to the court that they understand the court's order and they can articulate um, each time they use force, they have to be able, and each time means every pull of the less lethal weapon trigger. Um, they have to be able to articulate without speculating what danger and what threat that person that they're using it on um, is posing and they have to immediately write a report um, documenting that force. So. It's not what we asked for. We asked for a ban of the less lethal weapons. Um, we asked for, um, we asked to take Brent Taylor off of crowd control duties permanently. Um, you know, we asked for much more real substantive measures, but it's a first step. And I think the court um, essentially didn't wanna go too far with the first <laughs> violation that it found, but if it keeps happening, I think we have even stronger ground for for more substantive changes. You mentioned that uh, Judge Hernandez balked at putting in in in, a, in place your recommendations um, for this most recent contempt uh, ruling. But you said that you think that because it was the first, he was hesitant to go too harshly. But that if he continues to see this, these violations and this behavior, that you think um, he he might have a different heart about it. What do you think that's? What do you think that bodes? How do you think that bodes for um, the warm weather protest season that is rapidly, you know, coming upon us? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, so I think that there's a few things happening, which is that um, the city is learning from, from, from these hearings and from the fact that we're watching them. So we saw last week, I believe the city started, started using a different strategy of cattling people. Um, so basically um, this was 
you know, famously used in New York this past summer, but um, when they see a crowd of people and they want the protest to stop and disperse instead of um, just announcing it, after announcing it, I guess they, they surround the group of people and don't let them leave. And before they, they've done this before and they've tear gassed people as well. But in this recent incident, um, they ended up arresting people. They ended up photographing people and arresting, they ended up arresting 13 out of a hundred people. Is what I read in the news. Um, and we're watching that. And I think that, you know, not getting ahead of myself, but we were talking about, right, that the officers have to have individualized reason to believe that people are posing a threat. So like, ask yourself, what, what circumstances can you say that each of the hundred people that you're surrounding, that they're each posing a threat? It has to be a very specific type of thing that's happening. So that's a question. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, keep us in mind if, if something happens out, out there and you're, um, you're a victim of police violence, you, um, you know, Don't Shoot Portland has a um, intake form on their website and we're trying to get in contact with people. You know, we're, um, we don't have a ton of capacity because we're just like small law firms trying to do this. Um, but as far as the litigation that's still underway, um, but where, where is it at in the process right now? We are, um, we're like early on. Um, what happens is we have the right to a hearing on this case, meaning like what we're ultimately asking the court for is a permanent injunction. So a permanent order from the court that the police shall not use tear gas and impact munitions um, on people who are not posing any kind of threat. Um, and in order to get there, we have to have eventually a hearing um, where we present evidence. And one of the mind boggling things about this case is that it is so huge there, you know, in a normal case, you're, you're talking about a small, like set of moments or even, or, or if it's taking if, if over a several years, even at least it's one or two or a couple people, this is like thousands of people over several years now. So um, it's a challenge of how to present this evidence. So, you know, we can't um, present everything or even close to it. Um, a fraction of what all the violations are, but um, you know, we at this contempt hearing, we used um, we we compiled the video with the help of a technology company in New York who volunteered their time for Don't Shoot Portland for the most part, or gave us a big discount because they believe in this mission um, to create this compilation of um, shots and videos that really show very clearly what happened in that protest uh, with aerial footage. Um, so essentially, eventually we'll have a right to a hearing where it's our burden to prove that, you know, the, the judge should ban some of these weapons. Um, but before we get there, there's gonna be a motion for summary judgment. So what that means is that the defendants say, judge, throw this case out. Um, they can't prove it, you know, all of the, all of the evidence that we have so far doesn't point to them being able to prove this. So the judge, you can just throw this out before this ever gets to a hearing. So that's like, that's coming up for us. Um, and then eventually we'll go to an evidentiary hearing unless there's a settlement. 
you mentioned that the that don't shoot portland has an intake form on their website is there anything else any other way that you would uh, recommend that people get in touch with you if if they feel like they have um meaningful information yeah um you know the to be honest like the intake form it it's there but we're a small team of lawyers that are very busy so you know you can also feel free to just call my office and like or shoot us an email levy marathu horst um so you can google us lmh um dot com i think um but yeah so if you if you uh if you send an email that way then i'm gonna get it because i usually get routed all the protest related um and um inquiries that come in so you know you can also just uh name me in the email my name is victoria um or vika so yeah you can feel free to try to do that like if you have something really important that you want to share um or i'm always gonna try to call you back if i can that's great uh, yeah uh vika thank you so much for talking with us today We've been speaking with Vika Safarian, one of the attorneys representing plaintiffs in a suit against the city of Portland and Multnomah County for violating a temporary restraining order last year when local law enforcement indiscriminately used chemical weapons against protesters on multiple occasions. That's it for this month's Totality of Circumstances. Catch us on the last Tuesday of every month from 5.30 to 6 at 90.7 FM or on the web at kboo.fm. You can email us with questions or comments at totalityradio at gmail.com. That's totalityradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting KBOO Portland, your community radio station. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Sam. Good night.